You're listening to season three, episode number six. You're listening to the Punk Theology Podcast. And this is the last show of 2019. And do we have a holiday treat for you today, listeners? William Paul Young. And normally, yes, theology is in the name of this podcast. We don't talk about it that much, but this guy is a thought mover, all right? Because, listen, the admiration and acceptance of Paul's storytelling goes beyond, like, religious media or Christian stuff, all right? His latest book is called Lies We Believe About God. He's also written Crossroads, Eve, both New York Times bestsellers, and the runaway hit, uh, to call it a bestseller would be an understatement, 25 million copies and counting. We'll talk about that book and the film in due time. But yeah, the guy's a bona fide thought leader. He's been on Oprah Winfrey's podcast and her television show. He was invited in by Google to do a Google Talk addressing their chief thinkers. So what do you do after that? You stop by punk theology, (laughs) right? Going to do something a little different in this interview when you hear this sound effect. I've inserted something to get you to know Paul a little better because I've interviewed Paul three, four times now. Uh, And for this audience, um, I've inserted some audio I've gleaned from YouTube and other things that Paul's done as well as some other content. So I'm going to shut up now. We'll get right into it. Paul Young, it's great to have you on the podcast once again. How are you doing, man? How's how's it going over there? I'm you know what? I'm doing really well. And and you look like let's see, you got basement stuff hanging from the <laughs> ceiling. Right. You've got Christmas lights. I'm still I in mean, the basement, Paul. I'm doing the what, basement stuff. What studio. kind of a dungeon are you in? That's right. This is where the punk rock happens, man. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> well it's it's knocking the uh the uh, stuffing out of your ceiling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's kind of kind of going south down here, but but that's uh, all right. It's quiet. It's a beautiful thing. That's right. Quiet. Yeah, I'm cool. doing well. I'm doing well. Taking time off for Christmas and stuff. Nice. So, so let me introduce you really quick. Uh, William Paul Young, speaker, author, uh, parent, and grandparent. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, you uh, author of The Shack, which is a huge bestseller. Calling it a bestseller would be like, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing what you... It's what, a unicorn. Yes. It's just one of those things that actually don't exist. I've heard it's on one of the, what, the, the top 100... Uh, Best-selling more, fictions of all history, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of How human history. That? That's why it's a unicorn. And uh, it came out in 2008. called it a wildfire. And, and here's why, which is a really cool idea is that every once in a while there's a book that comes through and doesn't just burn a big, huge swath through the culture. It also begins to 
attract other readers. And so it's a wildfire. It keeps just, it's, it pops up everywhere. And it continues to do it. I mean, right. the, the shack, my, one of my boys sent me a note yesterday saying, still going, because it was number one and number two in all Christian fiction. So oh, that's wow. after 12 years. I think you become more mainstream, too, where before the film, I, I think you were a little more edgy, like you were a little more... Maybe I got accused of this by a listener recently, um, uh, and got and bless their heart, right? And they sent me an article on uh, on being a Christian progressive. Like I'm worried you're becoming a Christian progressive, Russ. And and they sent me an article on how three ways uh, being a progressive leads to unbelief. Uh, <laughs> so I know. Isn't that who was the somebody recently said that uh, becoming a Christian progressive is the step out of the door? To unbelief, yeah, and and you and you know what's crazy is if you look at the statistics about what's happened to the brick and mortar churches. Um, as someone said to me, the largest denomination in the world is the Catholic Church, and the second largest denomination in the world are Catholics who have left the Catholic Church. <laughs> right. And and statistically, if you go back and you survey the people who have left the brick and mortar churches, a good percentage, like seventy plus percent also ejected a relationship with Jesus, mm. which means it wasn't the progressive part of it that was the issue. It was the fact that in the brick-and-mortar system, they never got introduced to Jesus. And so now they, when they've shucked off the brick-and-mortar system, they've also just subbed Jesus off to, off to the side. And, um, and that's, that's very wrenching. That's that's sad that uh, so many precious people could not distinguish between the person of Jesus in their life and the institutional system. Yeah, it's it's become sort of a branding thing. The church, I think, the American church especially, because we're we're kind of business oriented, it seems, and and they all each church is named something. It's kind of their brand, right? Like, yeah. uh, like yeah. we're the. <laughs> the, the the woke church. I'm waiting. To, I'm waiting to see that sign. Hashtag woke. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the church. punk church. <laughs> there you go. That's right. The <laughs> punk. Church. I'm sure there's there's some of that. Mars Hill was kind of like that. Mars Hill was yeah. very guys wearing tattoos. Everybody had tattoos and piercings. And Mark would preach in a Ramones T-shirt and say a few swear words. And it sounded like you know. Okay, this is Seattle. This fits our culture, right? Yeah. Well, all they did is they put they they put flares on their Thunderbird. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> so, so there's a type of of movement in Christianity where you just you move to the culture, right? But your but your your gospel doesn't change. That is, you're still stuck in performance orientation. So, right. you you take your dad's thunderbird and you put big mags on it and right. and flares on it and then say see we're progressive yeah <laughs> there you go so, i know yeah. it's yeah but we we tend to do that and i'm watching something very fascinating happening now where the business world are beginning to be aware like Brene brown's uh, book on leadership um of empathy and vulnerability and authenticity and clarity Things which are inherently part of the gospel of Jesus, but the business world is picking those things up and they're changing. And 
you know, here the institutional religious systems were trying to become more like a business, and now the businesses are abdicating their role as business systems and becoming more relational. Right. And it's and so you know the institutional religion is usually about fifteen to twenty years behind, if not further. Yeah. And uh, and here we go again. It's uh, but it's a beautiful thing to watch because it means that life is happening outside the walls and not that life can't happen inside obviously life happens inside the walls because the holy spirit is is not constricted by our 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 limited perspectives and understanding but um there is a lot that's going on outside the brick and mortar and it's a very welcome thing what you wrote in the shack it's it's a piece of fiction it's funny how a lot of people didn't know that, including myself, you know. I started reading the book the first time I, we had that conversation, and that was when Mars Hill was falling apart. I think yeah. the first time I, I talked to you, that first interview on, on ASI was, uh, was when, yeah, I was in this kind of, wow, like I thought this was a thing that worked, and here it is falling apart. And Yeah. For those of you unfamiliar with Mars Hill Church's story, uh, Mark Driscoll, his wife Grace, started a church with basically a handful of people in their living room that grew to several thousand. And all this happened in less than 10 years. This made Mark uh, a thought leader in the area of evangelical Christianity in the United States at the time speaking to large conferences and Christian leadership structures. This was part of the emerging, emergent movement back in the early 2000s. This was quite miraculous as far as a lot of denominations were concerned because people had sent church planters to, to start churches in the Seattle area for a long time, spent a lot of money, and nothing really got going. And the church continued to be in decline in this area until Mark Driscoll came along. The sound clip you're about to hear was recorded at the downtown campus of Mars Hill Church 2010, and you're about to hear Tim Gatos, the lead pastor of this campus, which was in the heart of the Seattle downtown region at the time, who was about to ask Mark a poignant question, which I found really interesting. Here here you go. Pastor Mark, what is your greatest long-term fear about Mars Hill as it continues to grow? That's a good question. I'm, I'm at the season where I'm super-duper encouraged, um, really humbled by what God has done. Um, I guess uh, the things that I'm always worried about are, uh, my, I mean, for me, doing something to disqualify myself or discredit the gospel, like that would destroy me. Um, you know, so many people loving, giving, serving, praying, caring, that a guy in my position can really gum that up pretty easy if he becomes arrogant or um, unrepentant or unteachable. Um, so I'm always praying for my own heart, like, keep me humble, keep me close to yourself, Lord Jesus, keep me close to grace, my wife, keep me close to my babies, um, keep me close to our church. I just don't want to be a conference speaker who flies in and talks and flies home. I want to be a pastor, and I want to be here, and I want to be with our people, and I want to be with my family. And so 
I think staying close to broken people, close to hurting people, still meeting with rape victims and single moms and abuse victims and still being a pastor, it's really, really healthy and helpful for me in this season. Um, I mean, I get to do some cool stuff. I get to fly in and preach to stadiums of 10,000 and, you know, I have no intention and I haven't done anything, but I'm always scared that I'm going to be the one that screws up what God is doing or gets in the way. Sounds like a humble leader, right? Some authenticity, some vulnerability in his words there. Sounds like a great guy. But what I want to highlight here is Paul Tillich, uh, philosopher, theologian, he called faith in Christ or the new creation a ground of being. And what I want to raise awareness of in this conversation is how we define the gospel matters. Christians talk about, I just want to spread the gospel. I just want to share the gospel. And while not ignoring some of the horrific and horrible things that can and do happen to good people in this life, which gospel when it comes to the ground of our being, what is the good news? When we feel we're dying, when we feel things are incredibly intense in our other-centeredness, we will grope and grasp for any shred of good news to find a ground to our being. Um, the next clip is very different. This is four years later. You're going to hear a man coming to the end of himself and in that place, just about everything he says in this clip is a lie, um, including us being anonymous. There was a Facebook page that started that still exists today called Dear Pastor Mark, We Are Not Anonymous. Um, here you go. Um, we wanted to submit to and I wanted to submit to the authority that God has placed over us. We've been really blessed with some godly internal and external authority structures um, that love us, but love Jesus and the church above all else, and are here to give us uh, advice and accountability. And so we wanted to uh, have that leadership fully informed, up to speed, giving wise counsel and walking with us so that we were uh, under authority and, and wise counsel. And um, as well, one of the things that uh, has been um, complex is the fact that uh, a lot of the people that we are dealing with in this season remain anonymous. And so we don't know uh, how to reconcile or how to um, work things out with, uh, with people uh, because we're not entirely sure um, who they are. And so that, is, that has made things um, a little more complex and difficult as being anonymous. Remain anonymous. Remain anonymous. Remain anonymous. And uh, and and you were you were saying things that were shaking, rattling my tree. And I hadn't read your book. And of course, Mark called you a heretic. And and so here I am. He probably he probably sold me more books than anybody else on the planet. Right, that's yeah. true. <laughs> he yeah. called, it went viral, you know. And he and he called me a heretic. He said, "If you have." not read this book called the shack don't right and it went viral and i i'm not kidding I, you know where right. the law comes sin abounds 
Yeah. And I think a lot of people bought the book because Mark said not to read it, yeah. and including a lot of Mars Hill people. Yeah, yeah, so, that's yeah. true. And, but I didn't read it until that time, you know. Yeah. And well, it's it's a, it's true. It's just not real. So yeah. Let's, yeah. But that's the beautiful thing about art, and that's kind of what the conversation I wanted to to press into with you is a little philosophy on how art changes people, it ch- even changing cultures. You know. Um, yeah what you wrote was more subjective but you are you know like you said it's it's orthodox right this would yep. be to the core yeah orthodox theology uh and that's something that i was i've been it's funny a friend of mine john became orthodox he left mars hill and became orthodox and 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 me and my my buddy uh, leo we got all worried about him <laughs> like oh no he's becoming religious don't he's those on the wear, slippery slope. <laughs> yeah, he's, don't those guys wear robes and hats and all that stuff? Like, but um, over time and, and getting to know my friend John, and I'm still not fired up about the the pageantry and the, you know, I mean the yeah. vestments. My friend, my friend Brad Jerzak, who's a theologian, he's Orthodox, and he's not fired up about the pageantry either. But but that's not the point. Right. The the point is that there is a there is a freedom inside of that theologically, and a love that's inside of that theologically that transcends a lot of what you and I grew up with. Yeah. You know. So yeah. the people who think that the shack's not orthodox, and I'm talking about orthodox theologically, that is that it's rooted in in scripture and rooted in the traditions of the early church. Um, um, not just on the. You know, I'm not talking about the Eastern Orthodox family of of christianity but those of those folks that would not think the shack is orthodox are my own people right right yeah. the modern evangelical fundamentalists yeah and um but they're my people and i totally understand where they're coming from right um and so mars hill was made up of my people right you know yeah and um did i ever tell you that i went and met with mark yeah, 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 yeah. You, yeah. you were supposed actually, to have. It was actually a good encounter. You and I have a you, a friend, Jim Henderson. Um, yes. So, so Jim Henderson and you, I, I heard set up shop in a church and said after he had lambasted your book publicly for a whole sermon, you said, "Hey, let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation." We'll invite you. He didn't you want in. to meet publicly, no. Yeah, no, he didn't want to do that. So Nobody, step, but but he said, "You'll meet me on my terms." I said, "Sure." He said, "You'll meet me." alone in my office and i said absolutely oh, and that's what i that's what i did we had about a 45 minute conversation this yeah. is before the everything crashed and burned yeah yeah and yeah. uh that's sort of that's sort of you know that whole kind of systemic silence right it's easier to not be clear and to kind of back away into the corners and and you know hope hope this all blows over <laughs> yeah <laughs> nothing to yeah. see here um, but I didn't know about that. Most people at, at Mars Hill didn't know that you had that meeting had been set up, and you know Jim was out there carrying picket signs out inside of Mars Hill. We all thought he was some Catholic or some religious wing nut or something. But yeah, we probably should have been listening. <laughs> hey, some did. Yeah, Jim. Some, Jim is a sweet brother. He's he a is, good man. He's a great guy, and he's very, very, very artistic and very. Uh, brilliant intellectually yeah we've become yeah. friends you know since then but uh yeah great guy and a guy who 
also kind of transcended that seeing religion in the institutional sense yeah and really trying to to make things kind of move in the world yeah um there's there's this scene in the shack that's kind of that's beautiful and it and it haunted me it grabbed my heart grabbed a lot of people's hearts i imagine but that scene where uh where papa makes mac breakfast right puts the plate in front of him and, and he just he doesn't touch it he's kind of pissed still right and he and she's his first morning after his first night there so he's right. and he's had nightmares all night long about the loss of missy yeah you know yeah. the flying dream and he crashes and 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 he sees his daughter yelling his name or yelling daddy daddy and he can't get to her yeah, you know the, the right. worst nightmare yeah and um and that's what he wakes up to and he walks out onto the porch and papa's got breakfast for him yeah and 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 that conversation where where she says she being god the father says um part of your correct me if i'm wrong but she says part of your thinking you know part part of this is that you think that i'm not good and the the fundamental flaw in your life mackenzie yeah that's it is that you don't believe that i'm good i am and i'm i'm involved in everything you consider to be a mess for your good but until you believe that i'm good you're never going to be able to trust me and he says why and i so resonated with why would i ever trust you exactly his um, my daughter is dead yeah and there's nothing you can do to change that yeah yeah that is so so much um where i think american evangelicalism misses it doesn't um back it doesn't through, believe god is good or it has god in neat little boxes right baxter kruger had a great um i listened to the the shack revisited and he's talking about that scene where he's in the shack and it's empty and dark and missy's blood stain is still there and he just tears the place apart um that's most people who go through a tragedy coming to terms with the religion they were taught yeah you know there's just nothing there and and it's no wonder like you said you know people walk away from the church or or walk away from relationship with jesus because they see that and go where you know where's god (laughs) where's my humanity where do i matter you know where's goodness where's love i have to leave to find it you know yeah that that whole where do you mattering i think it gets to the to the crux of like original sin i think original sin can be boiled down to a coveting of abandonment explain just sitting in uh, there's nothing outside of me and i'm i'm totally abandoned like i'm yeah aloneness the commitment to aloneness yeah exactly but I, I still, you know, I still struggle with the idea of trust, you know. And right. welcome to the human race. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, because a lot of us as children were violated, and 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 we learned that we needed survival skills where children should never have to have survival skills, you know. And uh, but in this world, it's broken enough, and so so yeah, it's a big deal. To, to trust. This is, I think, why we have such a gravitation toward religion in general. 
yeah. is because you don't actually have to trust God. You just have to know what you're supposed to do. And not just religion, but um, the pursuit of purpose, you know? Sure. That's it, religious. It is. It's like a secular religion. You know, getting away from the theological, I think that, you know, we're given sort of a... I, you know, I want to... I don't want to shit on Tony Robbins, but that whole kind of self-help sort of, I need, I need purpose. I need, you know, things to make sense. This is my gifting and I'm going to go in this direction. When you were a younger man, Paul, uh, you were, you were a musician. I hear you play the piano. I did. And tell me about this song, um, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. (laughs) It is. I, for two, I was like 12, 13 years old, and two years in a row, I played at a major music festival. The, and the winner got a full-ride scholarship to, like, Juilliard or wow. a, another thing like that. And I came in second two years in a row, and I lost both years to Moonlight Sonata. Right, the same song. <laughs> <laughs> same song. But also, I was so at risk you know, and yeah. back then I had so little awareness of who I was that that it, that being able to play music, it came with a whole bunch of pitfalls. One is because I could play Tchaikovsky at a high level, I would, and I had reached 10th grade conservatory of music in Canada. That's a teaching level when I was 12 and 13 years old. And, um, and because I could memorize, a, you know, a 15-page Tchaikovsky piece, but I couldn't sight read a hymn. I mean, it was just a mental block, and I don't know why. And probably because I was safer with strangers than I ever was with anybody who I thought might know me. And and also, I was at risk for the one person in a hundred who would say, that wasn't very good, right. or you missed that, you know. And I'd literally puke my guts out for a week after, you know, those those big concerts and finally I couldn't handle the pressure anymore and I just walked away so I just laid it all down right. and um, never really picked up a piano again not now it's an issue of time yeah and uh, but uh, but I I did pick up a guitar and that healed a lot of places in my own heart so. that's great yeah it's that uh, in the show we talk about dealing with your shit right Sure. So there's people, that, and I, I had a similar story. I was, uh, I had an internet idea and a startup, and I talked to investment capital people, and they're throwing around. This is around 1999, you know, when the big, right before the dot com crash, and when they're yeah, the big bubble was bubbling. Yeah, they're handing money out to you know whoever's got a halfway decent idea, and they're throwing around high six figures and. You know, you can put your idea in our machines, and you know we'll we'll pay you. And I'm I'm all excited, and and also growing up around sort of this prosperity gospel. Oh yeah, thing that magic. Yeah, I was going to this church at the time, and I'm paying my ten percent tithe, right? So God's this vending machine. So you don't end up with a curse, Malachi. And it started looking like the vending machine was going to pay off, Paul. Like here it is, like oh, God's blessing my life. And then in March, um, the NASDAQ crashed, you know, and it kept tumbling. And then these folks didn't return my calls. And it, but it was one of those things where we tend to tie 
those moments to to God, right, Paul? Of course. Well, you've got to have somebody to blame, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just I I mean, that's that's also part of human history too. I mean, that's what a lot of thinkers would say religion started as, like. The, my crops are dying, Paul. I gotta pray to the give me the right God to pray to, so I don't. Or, or let's even make it worse than that. That is, something bad happens to me. Therefore, either I'm being punished by God, or God's capricious, or whatever. Yeah, I'm on the wrong side of whatever. If something good happens to me, I must have done something good. So there's a just a direct correlation between performance and outcome. Yeah, and uh, and and with regard to God, and Jesus comes along and says, "No, it doesn't work." You know, God causes the sun to shine on both the wicked and the righteous, and yeah. the rain to shine on both the wicked and the righteous, and and it's like, well, we don't want that, <laughs> you know, especially when we think we're the righteous people. Yeah, we, we we want God to kind of you know beat the crap out of the the wicked people, so that we feel better about ourselves. And a lot of our view of Scripture is like that, especially the Old Testament. Right. We just, and, and that was their view. I mean, that was the, that's, that's the darkness that they were trying to crawl out of, was that kind of a view of God. And, and they didn't make it, you know? They really didn't. By the time Jesus shows up, they don't recognize him. Right. And they're still pulling the same old language that has been existing from a couple few number of thousands of years of religious indoctrination outside of the revelation of Jesus. And a lot of and so we what we do, we go back and we re-enter that darkness and try to justify passages of scripture that just don't make any sense in the <laughs> when you're when you're dealing with the revelation of God in Jesus. Yeah. And and you end up with two gods. You end up with a with a God the Father who, you know, something happened to and 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 somehow Jesus is of a different character in nature. Yeah, you know, and and we get the ontology, the very being of God, wrong. You get the being of God wrong. Your theology is wrong. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, you know, a lot of the way we look at Scripture is we still get the being of God wrong, even yeah. though Jesus is like, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are ontologically one. Yeah, and. Um, but no, 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 no. God the Father, he's different. He needs a sacrifice. He needs to be appeased. You know, he can pour his wrath on... Jesus doesn't need to pour his wrath on anybody. Yeah. But God the Father does. So yeah. you've got two different characters of God. And and that's a problem. Theologically, that's a big problem. Yeah, that's the Janus-faced God, right? Of a, yeah, exactly. Of paganism. Exactly. And, Absolutely pagan. Yeah. But how much is how much of the Old Testament is also? I don't know if you read Rob Bell's book on what is the Bible, and he sure. talks a lot about the the Old Testament being, you know, just like just like I said before, a lot of folks trying to figure out why their crops are dying, and they created stories for who this God is. Yeah. But somehow through all those stories, these books were collected to point to some prophecy, right? Or they were, or they were. These stories were collected because inside the allegorical nature of story, truth can emerge, and yeah. it, and and then we try to use modern scientific methodology to take apart allegory in such a way, or story in such a way that we're saying, no, that actually happened exactly that way. 
Yeah. You know, and um, and then your writers of the New Testament are trying to clarify passages of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and um, and disagreeing. So Paul disagrees with Moses. I mean, flat out says Moses was wrong about uh, some things. Right. And Jesus is disagreeing with Moses. And Jesus and, is uh, saying things like, and, well, you say... You know, eye for an eye. Well, I say, you know, love your neighbor, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink of water. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. That's right. And it's not that there there isn't a need for cleansing, purification. Yeah. There absolutely is. Because this world is broken, and we do very dastardly, hurtful, harmful things to each other. And so when, when we don't know who we are, apart from our own behavior that is predatory and hurtful and um how is how are we going to be separated from our sin how are we going how does that happen yeah well it happens through transformation as through fire and god who is the consuming fire hebrews yeah is is the fire of love that is there to burn out anything that is not of love's kind so we we need that fire but it's it's not a fun process. No, it's not. No. And it's it's easier to believe in, you know, propitiation and things like that and and that's a big thing too. There's a lot of buzz now about about hell and you know, people not believing in hell. But I you know the whole thing about Gehenna that's always been for a long time that's been my my view is we've we've taken Dante's Inferno, right? Thirteenth yeah. century, and, and and made that our theology on how God is just somehow, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I don't. I I believe in hell, but I don't believe in eternal conscious torment. Right, right. Yeah. And and I think that eternal conscious torment is a denial of the ontology of God's goodness, and it it perpetuates an idea that that punishment, never ending punishment, actually has any purpose at all. Yeah, and it's like no, but that's what we inherited from Dante's infernalism is a modern day eternal conscious torment concept, and it's like no, God is the consuming fire. It is the fire of love. Yeah, and and you cannot separate the justice of God from a God who is by nature love. And yeah. and what do you want for your children? Do you want them to be eternally consciously tormented? Right. Like, what kind of nonsense is this? But yet, you know, a lot of us totally bought into it. I grew up with that kind of consciousness from the time I was very small, and it and it gave us a position for behavioral modification. That was the that was the motivation for transformation. Yeah. Was fear. Wait, how does that work? Yeah. How how does the motive for transformation be fear without? exacerbating the fear exactly you know action and i think it's page 184 on a lot of the paperbacks of the shack and where where people were accusing me of the kind of universalism that all roads lead to god but you know you can you can believe in pink porpoises or something you know and uh and all roads lead to god and so there's a section in the book that i put in there just so that that was never a point of confusion and and uh, and it was on 184 where Mackenzie is talking to Jesus. Jesus is about to go into a shop, and and 
Mackenzie says, so do all roads lead to Papa? That's the question, right? Do all roads lead to God? And Jesus laughs and he says, no, most roads don't lead anywhere, but I will go down any road to find you, which is the incarnation, which is the prodigal son, which is, you know, I'll go. Yeah, I'm not really concerned about the road that you're on. I'm concerned about you and I'll go down any road to find you. It's so interesting. I was reading something today that uh, the theologian called it the blackboard Jesus, right? So you got a blackboard and you're trying to describe God. And so they, you know, they put Jesus there. And, but then there's a different conversation about God the Father. I mean, it's mm. like they're different. So you, you have the blackboard as a way to, to see Jesus, but then it's a whole different conversation after that. And so you've got two characters. And who knows where the Holy Spirit is and all that. But, but you've got Jesus and you've got God the Father. And, and, and Jesus comes, and in the pages of even the Gospels, we see uh, a revelation of a God who is good all the time. But we don't believe it. You know, we, we listen to Jesus and we say, yes, Jesus is the revelation of God. I and the Father are one. They're the same. So when you see Jesus hug the leper, you are seeing the Father hug the leper. When you see Jesus um, take the extra mile with the centurion, you're seeing, you're seeing God the Father, right? But in our minds, we've made them, yes, he says that, but it's not really true. You know, that God the Father is actually the omni-being behind Jesus. And that God needs to be appeased. That God needs to be sacrificed to, you know. So if, if God the Father is of the same nature as Jesus, then Jesus also needs to be appeased and sacrificed to, right? If God the Father does, that's the logic of it. And it's like, uh, so we end up with two different caricatures of God. We don't even end up with a very good one of Jesus, let alone of God the Father. Yeah. And Jesus is saying, I've come... Uh, this is a Richard Rohr line, right? Jesus doesn't come to change God's mind about humanity, but humanity's mind about God. And, um, and yet we'll read it, we'll see it, we'll see it portrayed in the scriptures, and we don't believe it. We really think that God the Father is the real, he's the big one, and he's the one that uh, has to be appeased. And so we came up with penal substitution, which is the theological term, and, it, and it's the picture that God the Father, who needs to be appeased and is separated, can't look on sin, right, because he's holy. Somehow Jesus, who we also believe is God, can look on sin, be around sin, and as Paul says, become sin for us. <laughs> and what? We've got God now broken into two pieces uh, and with the Holy Spirit three pieces. But, but we ended up with a theology where God the Father needs to be appeased. So... He pours his wrath out on his son in order to be right with the human race, you know, to open up the possibility that if you do the magic words, you know, pray the sinner's prayer, whatever the magic is, that you can then be in right relationship with God the Father. But Jesus is the one that has saved you from God the Father, right? In, in that mental imagery, it's God the Father that you need to be afraid of, and Jesus comes to save you from God the Father. Well, part of the problem with that whole thing is that it makes violence the greatest expression of love. That's a problem, right? You're saying that the pouring out of God's wrath on his son was the greatest expression of love. That means that violence can be justified as an expression of love. That can't be right. 
So what do we do with, um, with that kind of response? You know, what kind of people have we become? If we've moved into greater degrees of freedom because of the kinds of changes in how we believe and see things, if we've moved into a greater degree of freedom, then that should increase our capacity to love, right? So we are asked to love in response in a way that those who aren't as free cannot. And, and that's, that's a, if you want a good telltale sign of someone who is growing spiritually, just ask whether their capacity to love has increased. Has their capacity for kindness increased? Has their capacity for trust in the, in the goodness of God increased? Has their capacity for forgiveness increased? For confession? For being authentic? You know, those are the, those are the markers of the movement of spirituality. Not that they can think better and they're smarter and they've got better words to put you down or, you know, they can trap you better. Nah, none of that kind of stuff is going to matter. It's going to be how, how are we at loving the person who is in front of us? And, and it says there's no fear in love. That, and God is love. That's First John. Yeah. And so how does that all work out? So, yeah, there's a lot of... Con- the conversation about hell is one that is arising right now, and I think it's really important. Um, yeah, it is. David Bentley Hart's book just came out, and, and, and he just blasts that from a very... And he's a recognized as one of the best theologians in the world right, right. now, yeah. living theologians. And he just, you know, we in the West, we think that modern evangelicalism is how people believe the whole world round. Right. And, and we're a small part of the conversation. And, and people are looking and going like, you hold to a concept that makes God no different than Marduk, Baal, Right. Janus or any of the other gods Zeus. of Mesopotamia or South America or, or the Greek. Norse gods. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, Greek or whatever. Egyptian, whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, so there is a really great rising up right now of a conversation that that I think is going to change how we look at these these subjects in a way that is helpful yeah because because if hell is the basis for our relationship with jesus and and a lot of my people had a stronger you know relationship to hell than they ever did to jesus Mm. that's that was the basis for why they did everything whether it was evangelism or anything else and um and it's like not helpful yeah you know not at all and and I, you know, Brad Jerzak's book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, is a great book. If anybody wants to start reading about what's going on in this conversation, that's a good one to start with. Yeah, that's good. And yep. that's the thing about a punitive punishment, you know, as a motivating factor. I was in the pizza business for over 20 years, and I worked with a bunch of different franchise owners from Bellingham all the way to Tacoma. And over the years... It was funny how the people that survived tended to be franchise owners and bosses that that loved their people, that stuck by them. I know one guy who hired back a gambling addict after he had stole something like $25,000 from him. And he apologized, you know, in tears. He he served his time, went through a a treatment program, and, and, and yeah, this guy rehired this man. And he, yeah. was, and he was fine after that. 
there was a situation where someone was stealing money and they set up a bunch of cameras and and he wasn't stealing the money right you know just to catch whoever was doing it um but my point is that, that one of the, another thing we saw was there's a lot of ex-military people that got into the pizza business the sure. weird thing about the franchise i worked for is you had to have you could have absolutely no training in order to buy a franchise. You just have $50,000 in a dream and they would hand you a business, which wasn't yeah. always super healthy and most of the franchises are gone now. Um, but the folks who are like military and could could like intimidate and, and yell at people and use that kind of fear-based tactic, it worked for a little while, you know? It, yeah, it yeah. worked for a while. Yeah, it was, it, it was sort of you know, like uh, in Alaska, we had this term called peeing your pants to keep your backside warm, mm. right? It works yeah. pretty good for a little while. Right, right. <laughs> and, then, and then people would leave. As soon as the economy started doing better and there was more jobs out there, a lot of those folks would leave. And, and mo most of those people weren't in business anymore. And, you know, that's... Why would you stay somewhere where you're being abused? Exactly. And a lot of people feel about Christianity just like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, they go they go to hear somebody tell them what a piece of crap they are. Yeah. And it's just like, why would I do this if I have any sense of self-respect? Why would I do this? Yeah. And, um, you know, I was saying about businesses, some of the shift that's happening, um, they've started to create a new... A position in a lot of companies called chief heart officer oh yeah and that and that person's job description and they they are above the ceo oh wow and and their job description is to care and attend to the hearts of everyone who works in the company oh interesting for exactly what you're saying in yeah. terms of you know uh the ones who succeeded were those who cared for the people that were a part i mean they became family they became something that mattered and so all of a sudden there was like yeah um by caring for them it's costing us on the front side but we're we're saving a ton of money by having to do retraining rehiring on all, all this other stuff yeah simply because we're caring for people and and they don't want to leave and there's again like brene brene's book you know dare to lead yeah talking about authenticity and saying look if, if you are in leadership position in an organization or anywhere else and you're not willing to be authentic, you will, you will not have a job in 10 years. Wow, yeah. You know, you need to do the work. Authenticity, clarity, uh -huh. empathy, and let's see, cave, C, clarity, authenticity. Yeah, <laughs> V, by the way, is vulnerability. So, vulnerability, but, there you go. And, so, and then empathy. Anyway. But it's these are all relational skills, right? And um, and it's like whatever this thing the Holy Spirit's doing around the planet is raising the human conscience consciousness level, so that relationship becomes this, the central piece of what's going on, not the structure, not the system, not the outcomes, not the not the bottom line, right? Not meeting you know not meeting all the the expectations of the board of directors and the shareholders and and they're recognizing it yeah. and meanwhile the church is just going on in its institutional system systemic sort of way uh, having bought into that blind to the rigidity right of what's yeah that's, what's going that's on. the rigidity yeah yeah there's a 
I think it was an old uh, one of the desert fathers or, or heard somebody talking about how even the the gospels in the beginning were an oral tradition, and there was people that felt that if once they were written down, they would be it would be codified. Yeah, exactly. It'd be like porn or something. Yeah, and yeah. people would would lust after wanting to control the the writings, which is kind of what, what we have now, right? Thank, thankfully, we don't have the original manuscripts. Thankfully, yeah. the canon is different in the Protestant Church than the Catholic Church than the Orthodox Church. Uh-huh. You know, so it's it's like just at face value, we don't have something that you can codify in such a way that you can then worship it. Yeah. And, and but my people ended up worship worshiping it. You know, we in my particular denomination, we substituted the Bible for the Holy Spirit so that we still had a Trinity. But we just didn't need to deal with any of the Pentecostal charismatic stuff, you know. <laughs> right. And uh, so, but but we do. And then the the idea of the oral tradition is that it requires a face to face interaction. You have to tell me the story, or you have to tell me your story. Yeah. And and that's a very different thing to, than to say, okay, we can parse this and fix this, and then you need to think the way that I do. Yeah. And um, you know, people are beginning to understand, and and engage with the reality that they can hear the Holy Spirit for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And once you do that, institutional systems can no longer own you. And um, and then it's like, okay, so how do we be in all of this mess and not be of all of this mess? You what know? do you think uh, of, uh, of graduating from church, so to speak? Like, I think that there's people like uh, Donald Miller's a good example. A few years ago, he talked about publicly, he said... Yeah, I just don't go to church anymore, and it was like a huge, right. you know, it was a huge deal. Well, let's let's be very specific though, and, and we have a problem with our language, and that is that we define church as the institutional yeah. system. That's a mistake right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And so when he says I don't go to church anymore, he's talking about an institutional gathering, a building, an institutional yeah, yeah. structure of some sort. But I know Donald. And I know he has layers of community and relationship around him that other people would die for, Uh right? So he hasn't left the church at all. The only true definition of church is the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if if you've got any systemic thing that is incongruent with the love and the mutuality and the kindness and the generosity— that exists in the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have something less than church. Yeah. And um, so um, I don't think, you know, God is has never been alone. This is, goes back to one of the very first things that you and I were talking about, and that is that this commitment to aloneness is so contrary to our ontology, the truth of our being. Yeah. You know. Um, God's never been alone. God has always been in community. So we are made in the image and likeness of a God who's never been alone and always in community. Guess what? You don't graduate. You move deeper into the reality of what it means to be church together. It's just not the institutional structure and systems. Now, we may organize in such a way that we gather together in a specific place, but you know what? What I heard growing up is that that institutional system was the church. And so now you either give your money, your time, your energy to that thing, or you're an apostate of some sort, (laughs) you know? And uh, so the identification became that's it, rather than the relationship. 
Right. And um, and what's happening is that the brick and mortar systems are falling apart. Fascism doesn't work, as you know firsthand. <laughs> yeah. And um, and it's like no, there is an entirely different recognition, and along with it is coming a destruction of inadequate theology, if not flat out wrong theology right. that a lot of us grew up with. So it's it's all being reconfigured. And and get this, and if it doesn't. If your theology doesn't lead you to a greater awareness of joy, a greater consciousness of your own brokenness and, and where you violate that, a greater capacity to love, then you're playing mind games. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's, something's wrong with your theology if it's not leading you to the more that your heart always knew there had to be. The burning out, to use the hell term, right? Absolutely. It's like that, that song by by ACDC is is uh, Highway to Hell. You know, that's been a lot of my life. I think it's yeah. the, li- the life of a lot of addicts too. Is is we tend to run from hell, you know, um, instead of keep going through it or into it. Yeah. There's, well, you know, George McDonald says that that if you if you and this goes back to that scene with Papa on the breakfast at breakfast on the, with Mackenzie. George says, if you trust the goodness of God, you will run to him with your arms wide open and you will say, please come and judge me to the core and burn out of me everything that keeps me from being fully human and fully alive. Yeah. And, and that is the promise of judgment. And see, we've turned judgment into the doorway into punishment. And, and McDonald has a great chapter on punishment in his uh, unspoken sermons, Creation in Christ. But it's it's punishment in the sense that it's the punishment of the sin that keeps you from being free. And the, the more closely linked you have made your identity to that which is broken in you, the more painful it is to extricate it from you. Yeah, yeah. And yet the intention of love is to free you as it would be for any parent or grandparent or someone who loves another human being. The intention of this affection is to free you to be fully yourself and yeah. thus fully of God. So true. Well said. And that's where, that's some of the work that, that I've been going through, you know, healing that I've been going through recently. I think that starting the whole punk theology project, there was a bit of a fire-burning advocacy going on in me a little bit, you know? Sure, and, and that led to some anger that was coming out. And you're and, still young. <laughs> well, I remember I'm 51, Paul. I'm like, God, you, know, you look great for 51. <laughs> it's because I shave my head. That's what I do. That's that'll do it. All that gray you yeah. got going, I just shave it off. Nobody can see it. Yeah, well, I'm 64. <laughs> see on. that? There you go. But I remember even you. I, I think you were you were doing a thing with Richard Rohr, right? Like you did a speaking did. deal with on the uh, Trinity. Yeah, and and. Uh, and I even said that to you. I remember saying, uh, "Yeah, but but he's he's Catholic, Paul. Like he's not you know, just having this. Oh, the freaking Roman Catholic Church. If there isn't a corrupter institution in the world, I mean, they're being investigated for for like by the FBI for or an Interpol for organized crime of of hiding pedophiles, right? And yep. uh, and yeah, Richard's Franciscan. I love Richard. I listen to his." podcast sermons and you know some of his books he's great but but i still had that thing like like here's my friend paul running around with some catholic <laughs> oh you know? i run around with it pretty much anybody yeah i know that's what's, 
<laughs> That's what's interesting about you, and and I think it's because you and Baxter Kruger said that too. I can't remember the exact words, but something about looking at the person through the veil of all their shit and all the stuff that they put around. Like you said with the analogy of the shack, right? It's like yep. dragging out this facade to put around the shack. Yeah. And guys like yourself and 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 uh, it's kind of what I aspire to, to do that. And I do I do that with like people if you're addicted to heroin, Paul, like I I'm right there trying to move in behind, you know, the layers of chemical shit to to see your shack. So, so you're but really good a... with pagans. You're just not so good with self-righteous asses. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah, right? Well, Those are the ones you want to have burn in hell. If your crack cocaine is, yeah, some, I don't know, protecting... Because at least I feel superior to you if, you have a, if you're a crack cocaine. Yes, yes. Because I'm at least, least recovered. Right? Yeah, and I think that's a big part of hell. And I think that some of your theology in the beginning, when I first started flirting with, you know, orthodoxy and, and thinking about that theology and... And understanding, you know, I, I kind of want, we all do, sort of, right? I want certain people to go to hell, you know, Paul? Yeah. I, want, I want them to burn. I want them to be punished. And some I, of that I do want them damage. to go to hell. I do. I, but I want them to go to hell so that they can be separated from their sin. Yeah. I want the rapist to go to hell. I want the murderer to go to hell. And I want them because the hell is the the river of fire that proceeds from the throne of God. That is, it is the very nature of love itself. Yeah. And the intention of that love is to free them. And it's not an easy process. No. You know, um, I, I don't want them to go there to be punished for what they've done. I want them to go there so that they can be freed from that which is not love's kind. Because yeah. that's not their ontology. Exactly. Their ontology is that they're beautiful and good and right. They're made in the image of God. So love is their ontology. I was, I was listening. Baxter was talking um, through John, as he does, because he loves the Gospel of John, which I do too. And, um, and he had this little phrase. He says, um, he's reading, and he says, Men love the darkness rather than light. It's a verse that a lot of us know. And I'm sitting there. This is just a couple weeks ago. And I'm sitting there, and I go... I wonder what the Greek word for love is there, because men loved the darkness rather than light. And I look it up, and guess what it is? Huh. What, what would you think it's not? Agape. You think it's not agape? It's not it's agape. Is it? Wow. It is. Which is wow. which is the definition of God's kind of love: other-centered, self-giving, sacrificial love. Right. And I'm thinking, like, oh my goodness, even in our commitment to darkness. We have to do it with agape because we're made in the image of God. Yeah, wow. And so we we give the darkness our it's we're other centered. We're centered on that darkness. We're um, self giving, yeah. and we're sacrificial. We will sacrifice to this darkness, but it's because we're made in the image of God and we're full of agape. We just push. We just put it in the wrong place completely. Right. That and, reminds uh, me of, the, of Tolkien with the, the my precious, right? Like that's like exactly that's that exactly kind of, right. Yeah, that's such that's, a appropriate analogy metaphor. That, yeah. And I think that that's one of the biggest criticisms about the shack, both the book and the film. I think more of the film because it, it, it there's a broader audience watching it, you know. Um, was the extraordinary response to to the understanding of forgiveness, and this is also something that's in the the national consciousness, the zeitgeist. There's this story yeah. of Brant Jean and this act of grace towards his brother's killer. Um, yeah, sparks, that was stunning. 
Yeah, and it sparked this whole debate on on forgiving. You know, uh, yeah. his for for listeners who haven't heard the story, his brother was a black man was shot by this police officer, um, female police officer, and just. Like, she deserves to go to prison. Like, it was bad. You know, it, it was really... B- but his response in, in forgiving her was, uh, was really... was interesting. Um, and at the same time, one of my friends, my friend Johnny, had a kind of a, a reaction to it to where in Christianity, there's a lot of pressure sometimes to, to forgive right away. Maybe before you've even done the work of understanding what that forgiveness means... And I know that the the shack goes deep dive into you know these layers of, I think it's st- the whole thing kind of culminates on him getting to that point. Like we don't know what happens afterwards, but he right. gets to that point. One of my favorite albums is Pink Floyd's The Wall, right? It's and amazing. That, it's an amazing album. Yeah, that same album, Roger Waters. You know, he ends. The whole thing culminates on, you know, the judge is standing there going, I sentence you to be exposed before your peers. Tear yeah. down the wall, you know. And it chants to this tear down the wall. And then it ends. Like, okay, the wall's down, you know. Um, um, Mackenzie's forgiven the, the cat, you know. The perpetrator. Yeah, and then, and then okay, fade, fade to black and, and run credits. And maybe that's where, where folks are, are struggling with this debate over forgiveness, right? Yeah. Well, part of it is that we confuse forgiveness and reconciliation. Yeah. Part of it is that we don't understand that there's there still needs a purifying process. Right. You know, and and so the scene in the courtroom where he forgives her was profound. Um let me read you something that now this I think captures it really well too. Um same sort of thing. But it's, um, there was a, um, um, uh, found on a wrapper in Ravensbruch, which was uh, one of the German concentration camps. And so handwritten, when they, when they opened up the camp, somebody found this note on a piece of wrapping paper. Okay, so this, was, it, uh, this was found in a concentration camp. Correct, in Germany. In Germany. Yep, it says, Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all the suffering they have inflicted upon us. Remember rather the fruit that we bore thanks to the suffering, our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, the courage, the generosity, the greatness of heart that has grown out of this. And when they come to judgment, let all the fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. Wow. Right? Yeah. So that's, that's profound. What I think some people are sensitive to is that so it doesn't matter? Right. You know? No, it matters. That's the point of the purifying, restorative love of God, this consuming fire. And so just, uh, yeah, so there is process. And in the, to deal with forgiveness, that is for the sake of the victim. Forgiveness means that, that I... I, I let go of how you are owning me because of what you did to me, right? Right. Because unforgiveness is like you carry the corpse of a memory about something somebody did who, doesn't, who may not even care about it or might not even be alive. Right. And so I would say, you know, forgiveness doesn't even require a face. You don't even have to see a face to forgive. 
If you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain of unforgiveness, be moved, and it'll be lifted up and cast into the sea. That's the passage context. So forgiveness is to free the victim, and uh, much more than it is to do anything for the perpetrator. Right. Reconciliation is for the perpetrator. Yeah. But the process of reconciliation is ownership. You have to own what you've done. You have to confess it. You have to tell the truth about it specifically. You have to ask for forgiveness, and then you have to change over time because reconciliation is the rebuilding of trust. Yeah. You know, and in, in human relationships, if you don't understand the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation, you think, well, forgiveness means that I have to be okay with them. You'll put, you'll put yourself right back into destructive cycles of relationship that, that you were in to begin with. Exactly. You open you know? yourself up to abuse and... Exactly. Yeah. And so, no, no, you can forgive someone and never trust them again. Yes. But the, the work of the Holy Spirit in their life is to separate their identity from their behavior in such a way that trust is then reborn as a possibility. Right. And, uh, and, I, and I love that. So Yeah, that's beautiful. And yeah. it's also having the, uh, the grace, of, if that's the right word, to have, to be also open to this person changing. Because to yeah, say, yeah, you know, to that, say, hey, I'm, I'm done with you and I'm going to walk away and, and, you know, I forgive you because that's good for me. But there's also the, the, the kind of open-handed, uh, you know, I yes, I could be um, open to a relationship with you in the future, possibly. Yeah, that's a miracle when it happens. It is a miracle. Because it, it doesn't, usually doesn't happen. Yeah. It's like winning yeah. the lottery or something. Reconciliation is for the sake of the perpetrator, and it does require a face. And so it, when reconciliation happens, it happens over time, if it's real. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it's miraculous. It's just absolutely miraculous. Yeah. So. Um, Matthew West had a song about that he wrote about a, a, a woman whose, whose son was killed by a drunk driver, and he went to prison, got out of prison, and asked for forgiveness. And she had to do the work of, of forgiveness through with him. And then they became friends. And then this young man became sort of like a, a, a son to her, which I thought yep. was, was pretty beautiful and interesting. And how do you do that? Yep. Without... That's, that's miraculous. And I, I know situations exactly like that. Wow. You know, I've got friends on death row in Tennessee in Unit 2. Yeah. And um, and so I I know what's happened in their world, and their situation's exactly like that song. Yeah. And um, I was going to ask you about that, because I imagine with, with the shack being as popular as it is, like you've had to have letters from folks on death row and people that have done the horrible, awful things that, that happened yeah. to, to Missy. Yeah, I have a P.O. box, and I only get letters from two sorts of folks. People in prison and old people. <laughs> right. the, the, the older folks are the only ones who still know how to write a letter. Uh, and the people in prison don't have a choice but to write a letter. Yes. And uh, so my my, I've got hundreds of letters from prisoners all across the country. And um, but I've become friends with the guys on death row. I mean, I, they're my friends. 
some of the freest people I've ever met. And, uh, and you know, but they're inside of a, a Western religious punitive system, yeah. you know, where, no, it's the punishment that yeah. matters. It's not reconciliation. It's not redemption. It's not restoration. It's not transformation. It's punishment. Yeah. And, um, and in fact, you know, it's one form of aloneness or another, you know, mm-hmm. so isolation becomes the big, the big weapon. And then after that, it's will kill you. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, which is death is a form of aloneness. That's, you know, yeah. it's how it's understood, even though it doesn't have the power to actually, and in fact, in the name of aloneness, it opens up the veil for absolute centrality of relationship. And that's, that's where I think ir- I go irony with the, of death. that speaking of agape and, and agapeing our darkness, you know, is like that backing up into the shadow. Yeah. Know? Not just alonement, but the just taking on the attitude of abandonment. Right. Being the same. Which is a lie. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. You've never been alone. You'll never be alone. God's never been alone. You were created in Christ. You can't get alone. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Aloneness is a myth that doesn't exist. It's not true, but it feels true. So yeah. Jesus had to go into that mythology of aloneness to destroy it, which he did. Yeah. Not, ju- not just did he destroy the power of death, but the fear of it. How about um, letters from... Because I know that Missy in the shack is a metaphor and missy sure. being murdered was 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 paul that was you that was your childhood right yeah yep and you and i share that and uh part of what you have to deal with in terms of abuse and and part of my great sadness is not only an abusive relationship with my father physically there's nothing quite like sexual abuse that'll rip the heart out of a child I'm a missionary kid, third culture kid, um, and uh, I'm a preacher's kid. But uh, I was 10 months old when we moved into the highlands of uh, Netherlands and New Guinea. So, and I grew up around people who had never really seen white people before. Nobody knew their language. But it's the world I grew up in. I'm 10 months old when we go in there. My parents, uh, they have to learn the language, build a compound. My mother was a medical missionary, so she was trying to deal with the, some of the diseases there. They didn't know what to do, and, and there was a question for a long period of time whether they were going to kill us or not. Actually, they were, the conversations I was around as a child included whether they were going to kill my parents or not. But I was disassociated from my parents already. My dad, part of a generation that didn't know it had baggage, didn't know what to do about it if it had known, and uh, his, his family history was quite destroyed and dysfunctional. And he's coming into this not knowing how to be a father, where the goal is, you do the work of God, and, and basically this is what is communicated to the young people at that time going on the mission field. And I always have to remember, my parents are in their 20s at this time. They're kids. And they're trying to figure everything out themselves. And they're dropped into cultures that they don't understand, with languages that they don't get. Um, my dad made some good decisions, uh, anthropologically. That is, for example, our first house had a wall that came all the way down. And during the day, because he assumed that if the wall was up, they might think that we were brewing up some black magic of some sort, and they would have killed us, which turned out to be true. So there was some sensitivity there. And, um, but he was a very angry young man, and that was part of my heritage. You know, he had, a, he had a pile of baggage on him that he just dumped in my direction. I'm the firstborn child, 
And uh, so I learned early on, um, and through some real disappointments in my relationship with my father, that, uh, that it was easier not to be around him. And he became more associated with those people. I didn't really, consciously, I wasn't aware that I was white until I went to boarding school. And uh, up until that point, I mean, the Donnie tribal people raised me. They would pick me up in the morning and drop me off at night. And my parents were busy. I mean, they had to do all these things. And they were told, you know, you do the work of God, you know, he'll take care of the details. If you'd put on the blackboard the name Paul Young and then put the Donnie tribal people over here and my parents over here and said, draw a circle around your family, I'd have drawn it around the Donnie tribal people because that's where my associations were. The devastation inside that is that sexual abuse started around four because my earliest memories of it, and it's in full-blown swing, and I never had repressed memories about it, I always knew, um, was around four and a half. And, uh, and it, it, was, it involved a lot of different kinds of sexual activity. There, the, the tribal culture itself was highly sexualized anyway. Their greetings are, a lot of them are sexual in nature. And uh, I don't know if it's got anything to do with being cannibalistic ritualistically, but some of the most common greetings, depending on the intimacy of the relationship, were connected to letting me eat certain parts of your body. And the more intimate the relationship, the more intimate the part of the body. And, um, and so, uh, you know, it was endemic in the culture. It was just, that was part of it. I, I really think I was sort of special. When they were talking about killing my parents, the Mungat, the ghost people, I didn't feel in danger. And they communicated to me that they wouldn't have killed me. And because and, I'm a Donny, you know, I'm a tribal person. But they went out of their way to set up certain situations. I mean, they would form a circle 10 feet away from my parents, 20 feet away from my parents. Just form a circle up. And sexual activities would happen inside that circle. And my parents were totally oblivious. And then, you know, when I get to six, I go to boarding school. And at boarding, Christian Missionary Boarding School, um, the abuse continues peer on peer. And uh, we were the weak first, second, third graders, you know, and uh, the abuse came down from the older kids. But boarding school was an abusive place anyway. It was a very dangerous place. There was shame from right from the get-go. But what do you do with it? You know, I, I can't go to my parents. I already knew by the time I'm four or five years old that it's not safe. That is not a safe place to go. But everything else is full of it. I mean, what are you going to do? So you you just begin to adapt as best you know how and find a way to survive. Part of what you have to deal with in terms of abuse, and, and part of my great sadness is not only an abusive relationship with my father, physically. There's nothing quite like sexual abuse that'll rip the heart out of a child and, and tear apart the fabric of a child's soul. And it embeds you with a sense of shame about everything you do, and then everything becomes about safety. And one of the ways that we tend to stay safe in that is to isolate ourselves, to not tell people what's going on. And at some point, you have to let somebody in. We're not designed to do this on our own, and we can't heal ourselves. I thought I could, you know, and I spent about 38 years trying to heal myself. And a lot of it was through trying to do all the right things so I could win the approval and the affection of whoever was in front of me, as, as well as God. And you, you cannot do this on your own, and you cannot keep the secrets. That's one of the biggest transitions that you have to make, 
is to let somebody else in the shack. The place where you, you hide all your secrets. And we hide our secrets because we're terrified. We're terrified that if we let somebody in there, we will lose the little bits of light and grace that we managed to scrabble together, you know, by working so hard. Because if they know the truth, of course, they will hate us as much as we do. And, uh, and at the same time, if somebody brings into our world the possibility of grace, or the possibility of forgiveness, the possibility of kindness, we don't believe them because they don't know the secrets. So we're absolutely trapped by our secrets, and as sick as the secrets we keep. So at some point, we have to take the risk and bring them to the light. It's funny, that's kind of where we hit it off, is we were both 38 before we told another human being that something like that happened. Yeah. Um, but have you got letters from, from those folks? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I was with Terry King, who's on death row in Tennessee, and, and uh, I met him because of the shack, and we're sitting there and we're talking. He says, you know what changed for me? He says, he said, so it was the cave scene with Sophia. He said, you know, all these years, he's been on death row for 35 years now, waiting for his execution. And um, he says, uh, all those years, I acknowledged what I did, you know. And um, But it wasn't until I read The Shack and that scene with Sophia in the cave in chapter 11. And he said, um, and suddenly he said, I, I felt so overwhelmingly convicted that I thought my skin was on fire and I was literally crawling on the floor of my cell trying to get out of my own skin because I realized that the reason I had never owned what I actually did in killing one of God's precious children is because I still sat in the seat of judgment. I still thought, well, at least I'm better than the pedophiles on death row. And because I sat in the seat of judgment, it gave me permission to not have to deal with what I had done. Right. And I and when he tells me that it's just like, "Oh my goodness." Yeah. How true is that? And um and so you hear in the background you hear Paul say something, Paul the apostle say something like, you know, I I judge no one according to the flesh. Right? right. Um you begin to see people according to the truth of their being. You don't deny their behavior. That's you got to deal with that. Yeah. They've got to deal with that. That's right. You know? But that's not the truth of who they are. Yeah. And so we don't sit in a position of judgment thinking like, oh yeah, no. Because we recognize the grandeur and the magnificence of that person no matter how locked they are into their crap yeah. and how how buried they are. There is a diamond underneath all that stuff. And um and we can call it out. Um Jay Baker was uh, my last guest on the show, and he he had a great quote. Actually, he tweeted. I thought it was great. I saved it. And he said, he said, I'm starting to think that grace may be a form of anarchy. <laughs> well, it is, because it's disruptive to everything that, you know, in this world system, religious system, political system, we hold dear. Yeah. You know? And grace is just another name for the Holy Spirit. So, yeah. She's a redeeming genius, and uh, yeah, she's an anarchist in the sense that, she, but she she's an anarchist of love. 
Yes. Right? Yeah. And so Healthy this is a anarchy. grace or to destroy that which keeps us from being fully human and fully alive. There's nothing more anarchistic than love itself. Yeah. It, it destroys systemic evil. So incredibly true. Paul, thanks yeah. again for being on the show and uh, honored to be. And good to talk to you again. Yeah, man. It's uh good to have you and uh thank God for all the work you do and creating a conversation. Honored to be a part of that. Don't I don't I never try to do that. It just is what's happening and I'm like, wow, that's yeah. so cool. And I hear the Holy Spirit go, whatever. <laughs> but that's what <laughs> but it that's, is. It's a beautiful thing. You brought this subjective story out into the world, and people are are all encountering it on their own their own level, and and that's yeah. what's what's really beautiful. That's a Holy Spirit thing. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We will have more, please. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Russ. Bless you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Punk Theology. It's a little late for tears, isn't it, Barbara? Even though you didn't know it was going to happen today, you've still had your whole life to prepare for it. Of course, you've gotten into the habit of not being prepared. And now it's a little late, isn't it? You're a creature of habit, Barbara. We all are. Unfortunately, not all of your habits are good ones. This was how your day started. Started wrong. Shut up! Thanks for listening to Punk Theology. Wanna make a punk robot joyful, jovial, jolly, gleeful? Hit that subscribe button. Like, as if the PT podcast was your lift driver. Would you please leave PT that coveted five-star review? Thanks. You can email the punks at punktheologypod at gmail.com. Yeah, they would love to read yours on the show. Follow Punk Theology on Twitter. At Punk Theology Pod. And don't forget to join the Facebook group, Punk Theology Pub. The Punk Theology Podcast is the sole property of DigitalAudioProject.com, LLC. Who is responsible for its content? <laughs>